Talking History. This is News Talk. We shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight in the hills, we shall never surrender. And out of that silence came thousands of voices. The strategy of the white man has always been divide and conquer. As one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Aukteroin, Argus, Akoiza. Good evening and welcome. We're talking history on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Patrick Gagan. In tonight's show, the 1798 rebellion in Wexford on this its 225th anniversary as we find out what happened and why and how it changed the course of Irish history. You can email us your thoughts and views, talkinghistory at newstalk.com and we'd love to hear from you. Last week we discussed the history of the European Space Agency and our fascination with space. That was a brilliant conversation with Leo Enright. We explored Europe's old towns and uncovered what has been hidden for too long and found out about the men, women and children killed during the War of Independence and Civil War and buried in Glasnevin Cemetery. And if you want to listen back to this or to any of our older shows, just go to the News Talk app, powered by Go Loud, our website, newstalk.com or wherever you download your podcasts. This summer marks the 225th anniversary of the outbreak of the 1798 Rebellion, a massive uprising inspired by the revolutions in France and America, which attempted to create an independent Irish Republic. It was crushed by the British Army, but inspired Irish nationalists all the way up to 1916 and beyond. And so to discuss what happened in the summer of 1798 with a special focus on Wexford and how it is being commemorated this year, I'm delighted to be joined by Miko Hassett, the manager of the National 17 1798 Rebellion Centre at Enniscorthy in County Wexford and the website is 1798centre.ie and Bernard Brown, historian and vice chair of the National 1798 Rebellion Centre and Bernard uh, was previously CEO of Camorra 98 and later in the show I'll be talking to folklorist and artist Michael Fortune and getting a sense of the oral histories that have survived over the past 225 years but Miko and Bernard you're very welcome and Miko could I start with you and maybe a question about the significance of 1798 in terms of, I suppose, the broader sweep of Irish history? 1798 is still quite important here in Enniscorthy and, of course, wider field. And I think it's important to recognise how 1798 can show us connections to people today in other communities. So we get a lot of students that come through our exhibition It's part of the junior cert curriculum. And when they go through, not only is there family connection if they are from Wexford, but we also find that many of our new Irish communities can identify with the struggles for independence. Very good. And Bernard, in terms of, I suppose, looking at 1798, 225 years on, where do you think it, you know, it's one of the six rebellions referenced in the, in the, in the 1916 proclamation. What is its significance? Is it in terms of the inspiration uh, that it provided for later generations, the fact that it was this, this major uprising and attempt to establish an Irish Republic? What do you see as, as its real importance? Well, I, th- I think when you when you look at the idealism of the of what the, the United Irishmen and Wolf Tone uh, and um, Samuel Nielsen and others were trying to achieve, you know, to bring together a, a union of um, a Catholic, Protestant, and dissenter, 
and you know in the cause of liberty, equality, and fraternity, those French ideals. But um, I think that that's still very relevant today. With what's going on in different parts of the country at the moment, in, in a post-Brexit world, I think you know the idea of bringing Catholics, Protestants, and dissenters together is is still really important, and that's I think the relevance of it today. But there's also a pride, I think, in what the United Irish Men and, of course, in County Wexford, what they tried to achieve in 1798. And that, I think, is is really important to remember as well. That folk memory really is important still, that, that uh, those ideals are very, very relevant today. And Bernard, why did it break out? Was it the ideals of the United Irishmen and the, the desire to establish an Irish Republic? Was it a reaction against the, the British repressive policies since the, the failed landing at Bantry Bay? Like, what, what inspired the, the people in, in Wexford especially to rise up? I, I think uh, if, if you go back and you look at the, the fact that, that the um, Americans had overthrown British rule there and then what happened in France, I think we can never underestimate that. I mean, that was a seismic event, the French Revolution, and uh, the impact that it had on many uh, liberal thinking people in Ireland, both uh, Catholic and Protestant, was enormous. And, you know, wh- when you look at the... the uh, ideals of the United Irishmen, uh, and um, I mean, it originally started out as what as a, as a, a political grouping, really, uh, in Belfast, and moved to Dublin, and it only became really radicalised, I suppose, after the failure of the Fitzwilliam, when he was recalled back to London. I think, that, I mean, I know it's a very simplified way of looking at it, but really, that was the catalyst for what was uh, the radicalization of the United Irishmen at that time, around 1795. And it was, I think, the, 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 what was going on in Europe, I, th- I think we can never be removed from what's going on in Europe um, at that time and the success of the French and what they were trying to achieve. And then you had, of course, the, the ill-fated Bantry attempt in, in 1796. All these things, uh, and the government went into... Uh, I suppose a sort of meltdown, and they were de- declaring states of of uh, kind of nearly martial law across the whole country. You know, at that time, uh, I think the the French, the purported French invasion of, of uh, down in Bantry, was a really a call to the government, and the repression that followed that, and what was going on in the north as well when Lake went there later with the dragooning of Ulster. And, I mean, there, there's so many factors involved that you can't really say it was just one thing that ignited it. But there, there are so many things, uh, the, the, uh, the penal laws and the majority not having any say in the country. Uh, the ascendancy, I think, had, had uh, you know, it was so corrupt and the government was so corrupt. There, there are many factors involved. And Bernard, you don't see a national rebellion, or certainly you don't see a rebellion in every single county. And in a way, that's probably a reflection of the successful counter-revolutionary methods uh, and, and the repression of the government that uh, they are able to contain it to just certain parts of the country. There's a rising in the northeast of the country. There's the rising in the, the southeast and in Wexford especially. And then in the summer later in August, you have the French landing and a, and a rising in, in Mayo and in Connacht. But it is 
is very much contained to those three parts of the country. It is uh, very much an East Coast there uh, um, side of things. And I mean, the dragooning of Ulster was, well, uh, and then the, uh, um, what happened there was, was appalling. And I think Guy Biner has, you know, uh, um, has done admirable work, uh, the great uh, historian, just in relation to Ulster. And, you know, in that wonderful book that he wrote there, Forgetful Remembrance, some years ago. But the radicalization of the Presbyterians in, in, in the north uh, was somewhat tempered after the, the dragooning of, of Ulster. And then you had the, the influence of the Orange Order, you know, as well. And, and the, you know, what, they were, what the United Irishmen were, were trying to achieve, uh, um, I think, did strike a chord, especially along the, the, the eastern seaboard of the country. I mean, when you look at what happened in... in um, you know, the plans that they had originally was to take Dublin and then the, the surrounding counties were to hold on. And, and uh, the delays that, you know, uh, stopping the, the mail coaches, all of those kind of things were really important um, as part of their strategy. But uh, it was really, um, you know, the formation of the Orange Order uh, certainly didn't help matters and what was going on with the defenders at the time as well. You know, there were there were so many things that, that uh, were, were part uh, of that story. And you had some really leading intellectuals in, in the North and in Dublin uh, who, who were so active in, in promoting the rebellion in some shape or form. You know, William Drennan, all these people who are forgotten today you know, uh, were really important in, in the early stages of it. But the radicalization of the United Irishmen, uh, the failure of parliamentary reform after 1793, all of these things are so important. And Bernard, talk us through then what happened in Wexford in the, in the crucial weeks in, from, I suppose, the 26th of May up until uh, towards the end of June, because there were some initial victories for the rebels and then you uh, see... There uh, was, yeah. absolutely. I mean, you know, you had... You know, the stopping of the mail coaches, uh, that was the signal for, for the rebellion to break out. And then you had, uh, you know, um, uh, something that uh, brought uh, the famous father, John Murphy of Boule of Vogue to the fore. Uh, and that was, you know, the, the outbreak on the 26th of May when there was a, a fracas at, just outside of Boule of Vogue. And when um, Lieutenant Buki was killed, Father Murphy's uh, church had been burned and prior to that, he was he had been handing in pikes, so he was a you know he became an instant uh, uh, rebel, and um, and after that, then the the battle at Owlert Hill was really really important uh, in terms of uh, what happened there. In that the, you know the twenty seventh of May, and they've already commemorated there uh, this year again as they do every year. And that was really important in that the North Cork militia was defeated at, at the, the so-called Battle of Owlert Hill. And uh, that really was an astounding victory by the rebels. And then the first Battle of Enniscorthy on the 28th of May was when the rebels took the town and uh, then headed for Wexford. So the, 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 uh, the slaughter that took place in Enniscorthy on the um, 27th of May I mean, the rebels drove a herd of cattle into the town and uh, the Crown forces 
were basically retreated and there was a wholesale slaughter then that took place in the town after that, unfortunately. But uh, the, the, the battle for Enniscorthy at the Duffery Gate and was really a catalyst for what the rebels could do. And then they headed to Wexford on the 29th or thereabouts of, of May and took the town without a fight because the, the uh, Crown forces had retreated towards Duncannon Fort. And after that, then, it kind of went downhill a little bit for the rebels in, in terms of uh, after taking Wexford Town, uh, the next plan was really to, uh, I suppose, take New Ross and um, break out there and link up with the Munster United Irishmen. And they were to do something similar in Bunclody to link up with Carlo and then Arklow. And as we know, they turned out to be uh, disastrous defeats for the United Irishmen and the army. You know, the, the defeat on, well, I think it was June the 1st at uh, Bunclody or Newtown Barry as it was then. And later then you ha- had the uh, terrible defeat at New Ross, where the, the figures about the number of uh, rebels that were killed uh, is upwards of 3,000. In some instances, uh, some of the historians ha- have stated that a number were killed in, in the Battle of New Ross in a 10-hour battle. And it's, it's an appalling number when you think about it today, you know, and it it was just really... It had a huge impact on the rebellion, the fact that they were defeated at New Ross. And it's all downhill from there. And uh, the British General Lake was, you know, huge reinforcements. So it wasn't a, a fair fight in any way in terms of uh, numbers or even certainly not in terms of weaponry as well, because uh, the British Army had the benefit of cannon and muskets and so on. But that that fateful battle then at Vinegar Hill on the 21st of June, uh, the rebels really uh, suffered a terrible defeat there. They did. They, they, I mean, I suppose the, 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 the end game came uh, really um, after the defeat at, at uh, the, I mean, there was a number of other major battles uh, uh, that took place, which are kind of largely forgotten today, like at Fuchs's Mills uh, the day before Vinegar Hill, when maybe 500 rebels were killed uh, by the, the forces of uh, Sir John Moore and um, at uh, Hortown. And, of course, John Moore, I suppose, is, is remembered today as the hero of Corona. And, you know, but he, 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 um, he was nearly defeated at, at uh, Fuchs's Mills. And then the next day you had uh, the Battle of Vinegar Hill, which really became part of the trinity of the 1798 story with, you know, you've got Father Murphy, you've got Bula Vogue and Vinegar Hill. Uh, and what happened to Vinegar Hill was the, the attack on the town, the taking of the bridge, and then the storming of, of the hill. And it was amazing that the rebels there did not have any sort of fortifications on the hill. You know, they had been there from the end of May until the 21st of June. They had no real fortifications. And, of course, the weather was brilliant during that period, as we know. And John Turrell has written a lot about it. So they were all camped outside in a very festive way. And uh, the rebel army escaped because Needham didn't get into place. Uh, They had circled the hill with uh, the army, the Crown forces. Uh, They escaped through uh, where Needham was supposed to be. And the rebels escaped. But then all the camp followers and the wounded, they were all slaughtered on Vinegar Hill. The figures, again, are atrocious for the number of people that were killed in in that that, uh, battle. 
and uh, the, the rebel army that escaped pretty much intact then went on to wheel around and they ended up in, in uh, South Wexford and then wheeled around through back into, into Mount Leinster and into uh, Carlow, Kilkenny. And eventually they got as far as RD, which is extraordinary. Even today to go from Wexford to RD is quite a journey. But in that time of the year, uh, in high summer in 1798, uh, it would have been quite a journey. And Miko, these events are being commemorated and there were some wonderful events that took place last weekend to, to mark the start of the rebellion in 1798 and they're continuing all the way into June with reenactments and so on. Can you tell us, uh, first of all, maybe what happened last weekend and what's planned for the month ahead? Yeah, so we had a significant turnout at events last weekend. We had a summer school series with guided walks and talks but there were also commemorations in Boulevogue and in Aulert. And then we have quite a bit more coming up in June throughout Wexford. So on the 4th of June, Wexford Town is holding a commemoration at the Wexford Arts Centre. And we have a really special event in Enniscorthy on the 9th of June. We have the Ambassador of France to Ireland, who will have a conversation with Drs. Liam Chambers and Elaine Callanan on the ideals of revolution and how the French Revolution inspired and impacted Irish rebellion. We have on the 18th of June, Rebellion Day here at the 1798 Centre. That's Father's Day, so this is a family event from noon until four. And there's music and food and blacksmiths. We will have all the reenactors here that day. They'll have a camp. And then at four o'clock, we're going to have a march to Enniscorthy Bridge. And the Redcoats and the Rebels will hold a battle at various spots on, on the way. And then we do have a couple of other events on the 11th of June in New Ross at the Three Bullet Gate and the 24th of June in Kilmore Quay. They're having a summer school. And then, of course, the 21st of June is our longest day commemoration on Vinegar Hill. And if people want to find out details and all the information, the, the website visitwexford.ie backslash rebellion has all of the information. It's such an important aspect of the culture and the history here in this area. And I really enjoy bringing that story to people who are new to the area and then also having local people come and visit and experience this again. And the longest day commemoration that you've talked about on the 21st of June, what exactly is planned for that day? So generally we have the reenactors on the hill, but it is a fairly solemn occasion. There will be poetry readings, a few speeches, um, some music, and it is much more of a commemorative event uh, that's open to the public. And Bernard, how would you respond to people who say that, well, 1798, it went out of control, you know, that the ideals of the United Irishmen were, were quickly forgotten about as it descended into to sectarian atrocities and violence and that it kind of, it became mob violence rather than a controlled rebellion? Yeah, uh, and that's something that's been, uh, Patrick, that's something that's been um, thrown up uh, the Wexford story for a long time. I suppose in any conflict, you know, when the dogs of war are uh, released, that there are terrible things will happen. In Wexford, and I suppose in Wicklow as well, 
I mean, the the, the um, people who were goaded into rebellion at the time, they knew what it or they had heard what had happened at, at uh, say, the Ball Alley in, Bal- in Carnew and various other atrocities that had taken place against the populace in, in Wicklow. And what happened in, you know, I mean, I suppose Scullabogue is one of the things that has been most uh, talked about in terms of the, the uh, history of what happened and the kind of uh, sectarian element of it. But I think you have to put it in the context of what was happening. I mean, you had a battle that went on in Neuros for 10 hours. You had a rebel hospital uh, uh, which had been burnt with, you know, maybe 75 uh, wounded rebels in that. And then you had the terrible atrocity which took place at Scullabogue, a barn which is... Um, just about a mile from where the rebel camp was at Carrickburn. And, I mean, it was an appalling tragedy what happened there, that, you know, uh, the bulk of the people who uh, were killed at uh, Scullabogue were um, members of of the Church of Ireland. They were loyalists. But there was also some Quakers and Catholics uh, loyalists who were also killed there. And, you know, over 100 people were burned to death or piked to death in appalling tragedy there. Yeah, and remind us exactly what happened. They were put into the barn, some were piked, the barn was put on fire, and this included men, women and children. Yes, yeah. What happened, uh, they were rounded up, and I think, from uh, I understand what happened was, they were rounded up and they were going to use the, these people as kind of uh, prisoners to get other people released. That was, I think, the original intent. A lot of them came from the Tintern area, uh, um, near Tintern Abbey, where the Coakleys had had a large estate. And uh, they were brought up from um, the kind of that area near near Featherton Sea and brought up there uh, and held there along with a number of other local loyalists from Adamstown and various other area, uh, people in the area. And they were, they were held there in the barn and... Um, Unfortunately, uh, after the burning of the uh, rebel hospital in Uros and the atrocities that took place when the rebels had been defeated, uh, it appears then that um, somebody uh, told them to fire the barn at Skullabog with all the uh, unfortunates in there. And, um, but it wasn't sanctioned by the United Irishmen, uh, with, you know, and... I know um, basically the men were taken out, a lot of them were shot or piked, and then the barn, the thatched barn, uh, was set on fire and barricaded up, and the women and children and the infirm that were in there were were all burnt to death. Uh, Harvey and the leadership of the United Irishmen were appalled at at, uh, what happened there. Eventually, the perpetrators were um, arrested in Cork, trying to escape. Uh, They were executed in 1799 and 1800. It's something that has been used time and time again to, to, uh, you know, along with the atrocities that happened at Wexford Bridge and also at Vinegar Hill, in Wexford Town on the 20th of June, and also earlier at Vinegar Hill, when uh, um, a large number of loyalists were piked to death there. They had been held as as prisoners. You know, the local yeomanry, played a huge part in goading people into rebellion in Wexford. So, you know, it's not just as simple to say that, you know, this appalling tragedy 
but it was just uh, the United Irish Men's kind of doing it. There's a whole, I think you have to put the whole thing in the context of what was going on at the time. And it became a huge part of the, as you say, the debates afterwards because there were an attempts by Richard Musgrave and others to portray the rebellion as sectarian, to, to turn Presbyterians in the north of Ireland against the rebellion, uh, even those that had been involved in it, and to show that while they might have been motivated in the northeast by, by these uh, ideals of liberty and equality, that down in the southeast you just had Catholics trying to pike and, and burn Protestants in the barn. So it became part of the politics after Okay, well, we're going to take a quick break now. When we come back, I'll be talking to Michael Fortune about the folklore and the oral history surrounding the 1798 rebellion in Wexford and what exactly happened and how it's remembered. So stay with us on News Talk. Welcome back. We're talking history, and tonight we're talking about the 1798 rebellion. And I'm delighted to be joined by artist and folklorist Michael Fortune to talk about the events 225 years ago. Michael, you're very welcome to the show. Great, thanks for having me on. Can you tell us about the oral histories that have survived and and what we know about the 1798 rebellion from song and verse? Yeah, it's an interesting one. Uh, in some ways, it's never left the the kind of memory, the folk memory of Wexford, and it's never left. I suppose, in some ways, on from the United Irishman side, from the from the insurgent side, I suppose at its at its heyday, at a peak with the centenary back in. 1898, and we could speak about that the Gaelic revival was happening. You know, there was a smell of independence coming, coming. You know, and etc. So that narrative was always there, and it was, it was, it was, uh, it became more popular and easier to talk about. Now, in saying that, we'd also have neighbours of mine who would be from the other side, and they kept a lot of things uh, to themselves. You know, they kept a lot of things to themselves going into an, into a new world, and I didn't talk about it. You know, but I tell you, there's an interesting, like, I there's a, there's a there was a neighbour of mine, a woman, I, I was born in 1975, and there was a woman called Julia Murphy. And Julia was the go-to woman locally, a local woman for local history, families, trace, and all that kind of stuff, Patrick, right? And one of the things that um, turned up was, turned up by accident about four or five years ago, was a recording that a man from Kerry recorded, a man called James Kavanagh recorded in January 1971. And he sat her down and he recorded her for a whole year. This is just one of the accounts. I can tell you loads of folkloric accounts. But this 60 Minutes is incredible. It's just, she, she describes her, how her great-grandfather, uh, John Murphy, took part in the rising. And the opening line, she says, in this recording, just see her, hear her accent's incredible. She just described the morning of the Battle of Owlert Hill. She described six or seven pikemen meeting. And she walks me through the places because she grew up near my neighbours. So you're standing in the places. You can, almost, you can, you can, you can feel it. You just, you're just there. You look around. You can see the ditches, the trees. And she describes an incident where six or seven pikemen had gathered, figuring out on Whistle Sunday, she called it. That was the old name for Whit Sunday. Figuring out what they would do, whether they would go up to join up the rest of the lads on Owlert Hill. And as they were do, chatting, she says, didn't five or six pike, uh, sorry, um, about four yeomen came down on horses in, in, in the direction and a bit of a skirmish broke out between the two of them. And the thing that she, she described in it, they all knew each other. All the houses up around Mullamaldin were on fire. They were talking to know what they should do. Should they go to the hills or should they go back to their homes? And they saw three horsemen coming over the wooden bridges. As those horses approached them, they knew them and knew the men who were on them. And they knew they were their neighbours. Just as they were passing the small crowd of men, Johnson turned around to Shaw and he said, now is your time. And with that he let his pistol go at the crowd and he shot Burn dead. 
That was my great-grandfather's brother-in-law. They all knew each other. The, the, the pikemen knew, the newmen, sort of they were older plantation families that settled in. There were tenant farmers too, but they were Protestant and they were on the other side. And these were Catholic smaller farmers. And the way she described it, and she described an incident where a pike was pegged at someone. But she brings you there. But there was one case, I'll tell you how world history is an interesting one. She described this thing where there was one pikeman, one yeoman taking off his horse, a man called Shaw. And then there was another man pegged the pike, she says, pegged the pike at a man called uh, Johnson, who was on a uh, on, on horseback, and instead it hit his saddle. And the pike hit his saddle, but he escaped. And now I, this is a great thing, in hindsight, 225 years later, we can talk to our neighbours and we can be open as adults talking about this kind of stuff. So I sent on a recording to a friend of mine who's on, from the other side, and I said, these are your crowd now, right? So ask your father, is there any truth in that at all, in that recording? And he says to me, he says, not only there's truth, and he says, that the saddle is in the shed. And about a week later, I went out to the house and he brought near the saddle that this yeoman, Johnson, um, had, and that, which kind of ties in with our story. So but that's just one example of that kind of richness that's there within the oral tradition still. It's still in the ground. It's still in people's heads. Obviously, in generations to come, it'll be, it'll be, it'll be lost, you know. Uh, it wasn't that hard to step back a couple, of, a couple of generations. You know, people talked a lot more. They knew families' histories, history more. This is, the communities were tighter. Um, so this idea of being able to weave stories and for things to make sense was a little bit easier with that generation. But there are many, many, many cases like that still exist in the, in the, in the folk memory of Wexford. And the physical evidence there being preserved by the, by the families. Can you tell us more about the Battle of Adler's Hill? Because I think you had a relative who, who fought and I think died in that battle. Yeah, my great-grandmother was a woman called Quincy. Quincy's, I think what there was, again, in Wexford, he would have had surnames that would have been a Catholic and Protestant, you know. And I think that what, what was, at some stage, our, our family, the Quincy strand of it, were, uh, were Church of Ireland or Protestant that would have come in with plantations. And then at some stage, and this happened quite a lot, actually, is people would have married intermarried and then with, with the Catholic families. And then you would have dropped down a couple of rungs on the ladder. But and the Battle of Owlert Hill, and, and this is all we know through our own memory, through family memory. I know that well, my grandmother was Jane Quincy. It's an unusual name. The first Quincy came in. The first Quincy's came in, uh, and there was a there was a connection with Enniscorthy Castle and Strongbow. But then our Quincy's came in a bit later. But this is this is a weaver. There was five or six people apparently killed at the Battle of, of Owlert Hill uh, from from the, from the United Irishman side or the insurgent side. Um, there was a Donovan. There was a Summers. There was one woman called Quincy the Weaver from a place called Courtlock, which is between Blackwater and Kilmuckridge. And her haggard is still there. The haggard, the Hayard is still there, and um, because obviously I've got relations still called Quincy, and they uh, that that's that's where she came from. We don't know any more about her, her first name. We know that they were definitely Catholic by in the in the seventeen eighties. I know that because I went back. Whatever reason that woman was there, and I will retain. But she got recorded as one of the five who were killed. I think there was an, a man killed from what I know, who was killed by accident. And then naturally, there was obviously the, the, the unfortunate North Corks as well. They were killed. Over 100, 100 of those were killed. So if you go to Bowler, you'll see it. You'll see it in the old graveyard. You'll see the, the, the names of the people killed. While you're going up to Tullock and Tullison on Bowler Hill, um, you'll see one of the stones there is dedicated to a woman called Quincy the Weaver. Um, and that's as much as I know. I know that, 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 that the story has been passed on and I know that we can go back to the 1780s. Weapons were very limited. We're using throwing stones, whatever they, whatever they had, sprungs, whatever, um, uh, farmyard implements, whatever they could get to, to, for, that, for that battle. Um, so that's, that's, that's my connection to that particular, that particular story. But there, there, are lo- there are loads of other stories. Like, the great thing about this, 
the, of, of 98 still is when you go and when you re- really get down, like I'm, I'm, we're from a farm labour background and we'd still hear the stories being muttered, you know. There's one, there's one, there's, there's even verses and things you would be told. I remember there's one particular recitation we heard as children and it's, you, you wouldn't, you, it, it, it was to do with the aftermath of 98 and it was only muttered. It was never, it was never, it was never sung, presented publicly because people were, I suppose those na- other neighbours from the other side mentioned and you didn't want to, you, people didn't want to offend neighbours, you know, things that, things that had moved on. You'd only really open up scabs and, you know, and open up old wounds. But that stuff was there. Um, I suppose song was always an important thing. When I talk about recitation in first, I suppose that was, they were the natural ways, natural vehicles for um, history to be, to, to be, to move on. And I always kind of felt in the Scarty in 1916, rose up in 1916, well, North Wexford and Gate and that, that area, very few places outside of Dublin City, you know, between, um, Ashburn and, and East Galway as well, and Lee Mellows had a good part to play in that. But one of the reasons in 98, why, why 16 happened in Wexford and was was successful in Wexford, in, in, in fact, it, it went through, was because we had just had the centenary of 1798. And people were fired up, were fired up with songs. We were taught those songs, the Bula Rogues, Kelly from Kelan, you know, all the, there was a whole, a whole canon of songs and verses there that were feeding people. And that was there. And if you even look back to the witness statements, one thing that we struck us, remember we did a, a lovely project with the National Library and the Irish Traditional Music Archive back in 2016. And we worked with singers to write new songs to do with 1916 because there were very few songs written about it. But one of the things when we were looking back and we were looking back at what the witness statements were from, from 1916 to 1921-22 was loads of people said they were spurred on to, get, to take part due to the songs that they heard on their mother's knee. That was one of the recurrent stories we heard. And even, we, even when you look back at the witness statements of, of Ashburn, I know I'm moving on a couple of hundred years there now, but 16, in, in, in 1916, was song was there. They even mentioned the songs that were singing on that time. And even when you go to the boys in Krongok, there were always, you know, like uh, Sean Etchingham in particular was, uh, uh, was involved in 16 here. But all he did when he went to Krongok were write songs, you know, writing songs about the great days of 98 or the great days of, of the 1840s. And fifties, but so that 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 thing is there, and even still, you you never you'll you'll probably never have an event in Wexford where you don't hear someone singing Bull of Oak at the end of it. You know, some, it's always that kind of like it's our national anthem. You know, and that's that's why ninety eight is such a, a kind of a, a part of the fabric of who we are. And Michael, it's interesting, even John Redmond, the, the constitutional nationalist leader who, who very much opposed the 1916 Rising, he was proud of his connections to the 1798 Rebellion and boasted of, of his connections there in terms of a Father Redmond and uh, other relatives who'd been involved, um, and Miss Redmond as well. So uh, even someone who was opposed to the use of violence in the 20th century, you know, he liked to celebrate this violent uprising in 1798. Yeah, I suppose it was so widespread throughout throughout the whole county, you know, and then into into Wicklow and Carlow as well, and the legacy lasted on for so long as well. You see that that that's the thing, like we we I, my my area of work is folklore, so I'm I'm always around people recording and stuff, and stuff like this will crop up. As I said to you, like the the, the old man saddle, like the, only recently, only two about two years ago, I held um, true folklore. I held a pike in my hand, and I'm fairly accurate that it's the real deal, because it was found in a field called the Hanging Field outside the Castle Homer, and the man who dug it. Up by accident, they were digging up, they were digging up, um, doing work on it with a digger, and they came across this bent up little, small, tiny little pike. 
So this the, the folklore will, will indicate and find those bits and pieces, but the legacy lasted for, for negative reasons for about 30 years, 40 years afterwards. Like if we even look at, like I said, my area's folklore, and we look at, say, the Midsummers, Battle of Vinegar Hill, 21st of June, that's the, 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 summer, the, 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 summer, the summer solstice. Uh, and, and if you go then to St. John's Eve, and anywhere you go in Ireland, there were always big bonfires, community bonfires, Mayo, Cork, Donegal, Derry, and even in parts of the, the hills in Wexford, there were always that tradition was there. But post 98, that affected that, it didn't happen. And there was one thing that was going on a lot in the it went on for about 30, 40 years, and it was eventually kind of just wind out, was the local orange order would burn the Tree of Liberty. And there was a great talk by Quincy Duggan, who was in, uh, from, from Armagh, I remember hearing it in Gory about three years ago. He details that, and it's been detailed, and I won't go into the detail here, but the idea that there was a triumphal arch made in Inniscarty, the Liberty Tree, the Liberty Tree, which was the symbol of, of the United Irishmen, was taken out and burnt. And there was always that kind of conflict between green and orange, green and orange, and eventually maybe just prior to the famine, it just kind of it, 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 it disappeared and stopped. But that, that heavy, oppressive headspace was there, you know. And a lot of people, Catholic and Protestant, up and left, and my own village, loads of people went to Mexico. They went off to Argentina. They went down to um, Argentina. The Catholics went there. The Church of Ireland, the Protestant people went to went to uh, went to Canada. And you know, again, you're talking the, the, the tide wars and things like that as well in the 1820s and 30s. But a lot of people up and left. They just up and left. So I definitely didn't. It wasn't a nice place in the decades to go after it, and it certainly wasn't a nice place in the years afterwards. That was, and that's one thing that's really, really strong. The, the, the years and months after '98 were. Were, were horrendous, that, that, and that's when the kind of a sectarian element uh, uh, really uh, raised its head. There was one, there was a series of letters that I had discovered from my home village from August 1798, and there were local men. I grew up in an area called the McNamores, which is along the east coast of Wexford. And afterwards, a lot of people went went through either went back through that area of Wexford, I suppose from I suppose from Clumucridge up to Arklow Rock, that area, and more went pushed up north. Two letters that survived. Now the question is whether they're real or not. The letters are written by men from the Macamores offering their services to the English army to go fight the French in Mayo and in, in the rest of the, if, if they will, he will hold off the sectarian factions that were basically looking for reprisals for, for, the, for, the, for the writing. It wasn't a nice place um, uh, for months and for the, the years afterwards. So that's, it's, no, it's no wonder that legacy is still there with us. Um, and it's no wonder it's still there within our folklore and within our songs and within our verses. And I suppose now the great thing about now is that we're 225 years later. We can offer a reflection and we can talk about it a bit more and with a bit more maturity. Um, and as I said to you, being able to talk to a neighbour and for him to be able to Put put two and two together and make up and 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 bring out that 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 saddle that saddle belongs to that yeoman uh, Johnson, um, is all part of that history and all part of telling that story. And Michael, you mentioned some of the sectarian tensions. Are is there anything in the folklore about some of the the sectarian atrocities that we see taking place in 1798? For example, at Scullabogue when you had men, women, and children put into a barn and it set on fire by the rebels. Oh, absolutely, yeah, and it was a, a, a well documented, an absolute horrendous, horrendous event. Um, and likewise, the horrendous events went on, 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 on they went on on both sides, um, and sadly. And that's that, and that's the thing. Like that, if I can even go back to the first, the first moment when I talked to you, and I mentioned about that woman. Now I know the United Irishmen and their ideals were. Absolutely, completely, you know, you know, liberty, equality, fraternity, and and it had more made up with, with people from, from 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 all religions and, and none. But when I just go back to Julia Murphy's account, it, it, it just the first account of the battle. 
the divide was so obvious, if you know, if you know what I mean. You know, that, that idea of six or seven uh, pikemen who were small Catholic farmers or farm labourers, and then you would have had three or four yeomen who would have been Church of Ireland, uh, uh, yeomanry, yeoman, yeomanry corps, slightly bigger farmers, not too much bigger either. But that kind of divide, and I suppose you're, 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 not, you're not going too far back to North Wexford. Here's, we forget this as well, in particular North Wexford was, was planted. And that was it was the was the, was the Gaelic stronghold of McMurrah, the Kis, the Kinsellas, the Murphys, um, and that kind of stuff didn't go away. That kind of resentment uh, didn't go away. We're not talking that long ago. Only skip again back from '98, back skipping back a couple of memories, you know, a couple of generations and the memories. But that stuff didn't go back with regard to settlement of of, of right the rights of our land, who owns our land. So there was a, there was a lot more going on in Wexford than in in in, in other in, in other counties uh, um, with regard to that, and particularly that part of Wexford. So that sectarian thing was always there. Sadly, you know, I think it was there. People might argue differently, but from my experience, it was there. You'd like to imagine that it wasn't, but it was. But that's that's it. That 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 map is wrong. Done. And again, here's the great thing: there was a man called Quincy Duggan came down from Armagh, did a talk in Gorey Library back in February 2019, and he did a book on the Orange Lodges of Wexford. So it took a man from our, our mama from the Orange tradition to come down to write the book about the Orange Lodge traditions in Wexford. And I'm grateful for it because it's, it's, it's a great little publication. He did the same in Cork. He did the same in Mayo. So it's a, these are parts of our history, you know, and, and I'm more kind of come from the folklore side and from people and from people's memory and, and that. And a final question then, Michael. What do you, do you think that there's the same level of interest in 1798 amongst the younger generation? Or, you know, in other words, will this excitement and enthusiasm about remembering and commemorating the events of 225 years ago, will that continue on? Will there, will there always be that level of interest in Wexford? I think it will in different ways. 1998 was an amazing year for commemorations in Wexford because it, there was a, it, it came from the ground up. Every little group from pike groups, for that, for, you know, um, young and old, whatever. But I don't think it'll ever, it will ever disappear. It won't disappear. Like it won't disappear. Like my, like you know, I've got three three girls, you know, and they get brought around to boring places with their daddy to look at things, you know, to look at stones and fields or to look at a corner of a field where something happened. I remember. I'll lend you. Here's a story for you. I remember being down in Southwest Wexford once, where we were brought to a corner of a field by. Where I was doing tour, we're doing a local mapping project with a group of men, and there was a man from Dublin there. I'd moved in, and there was about ah, seven or eight of us on a fine day, and there's a woman there, and she says to us, "There's twelve lads buried in the corner of that field there." And I said, Geez. and she told the story. What happened?" And I said, it "Was she, she think she mentioned a woman or two?" And uh, she told the story. And as we're walking back out of the field, we'd been visiting a couple of other sites like this before, and this Dublin man said to me, "He said, do you know what you're doing? You're bringing us to places to see nothing." And I said, no, I'm not. Didn't the woman tell you that there's 12 people buried there? And she goes, yeah, but I can't see anything. I said, yeah, but didn't the woman tell you? So here's the thing. That kind of stuff lives on. Those, those kind of memories. I think some people expect the bells, the whistles, and the big monuments, the big this and that. But sometimes actually with ordinary people, it's actually the stuff that lives on in, in their minds and actually in the landscape, in that landscape, you know, that you can go and talk to someone and they can bring you, oh, like I know a man in Blackwater will bring you up to a corner of a field and tell me there's just two crappies from Gory buried there. Or, you know, that kind of stuff is there. And there's no monument there. It's in that man's head and that man's head's passed on to me and he's probably passed on to his son or his daughters. So it will live on for sure. Uh, absolutely. It will live on for sure. So I can't see it ever, uh, ever, ever 
ever leaving us. Uh, but I hope we're able to expand the picture a bit more and to include more conversations in it. That's what I'd love to do going forward. Brilliant. Well, my thanks to Michael Fortune, artist and folklorist, for joining me tonight to talk about how 1798 is remembered and why it continues to have such a hold in all of these oral and rich uh, folklore traditions. Michael, thanks so much for joining us. Lovely, thanks. thanks for having me. We'll take another quick break now. When we come back, we'll be rejoining our panel to look at the legacy and impact of the 1798 Rebellion. Well, welcome back to Talking History. I'm delighted to be rejoined by my panel, Miko Hassett, the manager of the National 1798 Rebellion Centre at Enniscorthy, the website there, 1798centre.ie, and Bernard Brown, historian and vice chair of the National 1798 Rebellion Centre. It is very important for the people in Enniscorthy, in Wexford, because it is part of the local heritage and it's something that's an important part of the national story, but a very much an important part of the Wexford story as well. Absolutely. And without 1798, we wouldn't be where we are today. There's kind of that sentiment of, if not now, when? So it happened in 1798, but that led to the mid-1800s. It led to ultimately 1916 and the independence and the republic that we experience today. And of course, Bernard, back in 1998 for the bicentenary of the 1798 Rebellion, it was also the summer of the Good Friday Agreement, the referendums being passed north and south, and uh, uh, there was a sense of history now moving on to a new chapter. There certainly was, and I mean, there was a tremendous amount of engagement uh, with uh, groups in the north of Ireland at that time. And uh, I mean, the emphasis um, was very much on... Uh, uniting Catholic, Protestant and dissenter, uh, to quote Tone's uh, famous line, you know, and I mean, it was really, I remember being at meetings at the, the uh, government buildings and, you know, being told um, at that time, you know, that this was really important, that this would be done right and that it would be suitable and dignified. And it was, you know, um, right throughout the country. And there was a huge amount of engagement. I mean, the members of the Northern Irish uh, 1798 commemoration, they participated in events uh, in, in Wexford and in Dublin. Uh, the Orange Order uh, was active as well. Um, they had a, a commemoration on the 11th of June, as I remember, in 1998 at Stormont. And... They were a lot of them who were there um, were very surprised to find that um, a lot of their forebears um, were radicals against the crown at the time. I remember there was a sense of shock in some of them. And uh, there was also events at Hillsborough, which uh, Mo Molan hosted and Minister Murphy at the time there. So there was a huge amount of engagement, a huge amount of positivity during that period. And, uh, you know, the Good Friday Agreement, had, the referendum, as you mentioned, had been passed and everything. So there, there was a lot and there was a lot of, I mean, you probably participated in dozens and dozens of seminars and such uh, and gave papers uh, at the time. You know, there, there was a huge level of engagement right across the country. And Bernard, and what I thought was interesting, though, is that in a way, I wonder, will the same thing happen with the decade of centenaries that's coming to an end uh, this year? That 
there were so many people doing PhDs on, on aspects to do with the 1798 rebellion. There was a huge amount of, of publications. There was a huge amount, as you say, of events. And, and I do remember taking part in some of them here and in the UK and so on. But then after 1998 came to an end, it just seemed to kind of stop. You had some follow-on publications from work that had been had been done, but the kind of... The attention, the focus moved away from it then afterwards. It, it did, it did. And I think that there was a sense of exhaustion as well um, because there were so many events that took place. I mean, if you, you, you know, if, if you just take a kind of a look at, at the number of publications that came out, um, every parish and half parish nearly in the country uh, had some sort of booklet or pamphlet that came out on, on 1798. I think, that, I mean, at the time there was a couple of hundred publications that came out and then you had kind of the, the learned journals as well as as um you know you had the uh, bicentenary perspe- perspective book um which was a massive tome which was published the commemorations like the longest day commemoration in Enniscorthy was there all the time you know it never went away and there was other events that took place uh, the the new ross commemoration always took place uh but the the um and, and the, the 1798 Centre definitely kept uh, the story alive with, with, you know, but there was a fatigue that set in after uh, 98. And Bernard, why do you think 1798 failed? Was it just because uh, there was such a, a difference and a disparity in the, the equipment and the troop levels on both sides? Was it uh, the the fact that, you know, there was only a, a limited French force sent? Was it the fact that you had had such a uh, a policy of, of repression and a crackdown that stopped it being a, a, a truly nationwide rebellion? Why did it fail? Well, I, I'd say I suppose the lack of, I mean, the, the, the arrest of many of the leadership uh, in, in March 98, the, you know, uh, had a huge impact. I think the, the loss of Lord Edward Fitzgerald and some of the other leaders, uh, um, you know, was for the United Irishmen a, hu- a huge loss. But I think also there was no real military men in the United Irishmen, um, uh, strategic uh, thinkers, uh, in military terms, I mean, there was, um, uh, you know, there might have been the intellectuals there, but but also they didn't have the weaponry. I mean, you had, you know, I mean, the pike, you know, um, against a musket. You had a very well trained army. The oppression that was there uh, was extraordinary, you know, and uh, the failure of the French to come, and when they did come, then uh, you know, and uh, the aftermath of what happened. All of these things, uh, people just, you know, I suppose they were exhausted. And when you think about it, maybe upwards of 30,000 people were killed uh, during that whole period. And that's a really significant figure when you consider, you know, it's maybe, you know, one fifth or one sixth of that were killed during the the War of Independence and the Civil War in Ireland combined. And that's over a a much longer period to to have, you know, 30,000 dead on the island of Ireland in just the summer of 1798, that was going to be hugely traumatic. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And the whole infrastructure of the country was destroyed as well. I mean, when you think about it, the whole economic base of the country, uh, and for, say, counties like Wexford, which, had, which was a very prosperous county prior to 1798, 
the rebellion, you know, I mean, it had a, an extensive uh, trade in malting barley and, you know, that was one of the factors for the rebellion to break out as well as the late Tom Powell, you know, wrote about the price of barley dropping from 26 shillings a barrel to 6 shillings, you know, uh, in 1997. The economic factor of the rebellion. Also, most of the, the big industries were held by, by uh, people who were deemed to be loyalists. And they suffered hugely uh, loss of, of uh, confidence after 1798 as well. And, you know, the compensation lists, when you look at them, the amount that was paid out in Wexford was really extraordinary. You know, in terms of today, it would be in the millions. You know, so there's the, all those factors that, that were there. But uh, it, it, it's, it was a catalyst, I suppose, for the active union. And, um, you know, from 1799 onwards, that was the thinking within the Dublin administration at the time. And, it, you know, it's, it's uh, later then you had Robert Emmett trying to uh, get, get, get some semblance of independence again. And, uh, I mean, it's, 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 it really was a, a, a very traumatic period for the whole country. And the wholesale slaughter, I think, we can never get our heads around. I mean, we can try and put it today in, in context of what's happening maybe in, in uh, Eastern Europe. But gosh, at the time, the, the, it, it must have been terrible, you know. And um, we need to remember that. But the message of the United Irishmen, I mean, it is still relevant today. You know, there's a new documentary coming out next week. It's got a private screening in Dublin next week on the United Irishmen. It'll be on the film circuit, the festival film circuit later in the in the year, and probably will go into general release. It's the the Alan Gilson documentary on the United Irishmen. So it is still relevant today what they try to do, and I think that that's what we need to remember. You know, we can look back on all the atrocities and everything that took place, but what we're trying to still trying to find in this country is liberty, equality and fraternity for all. And I think that has to be the message of all the commemorations that have taken place. And to remember those who sacrificed their lives, uh, who also uh, to acknowledge that terrible things happened. Oh, well, I think that's a wonderful message to end tonight's show. And I think a brilliant summation of the continuing uh, significance of the 1798 Rebellion. My thanks to my wonderful panel of experts, Miko Hassett, the manager of the National 1798 Rebellion Centre at Enniscorthy, the website there, 1798centre.ie, Bernard Brown, historian and vice chair of the National 1798 Rebellion Centre. And as I say, the website to go to uh, to hear about these events, uh, visit wexford.ie forward slash rebellion. And we also heard from Michael Ford fortune, artist and filmmaker. Well, that does bring us to the end of another edition of Talking History. My thanks to my producer, Marisa Sullivan, and to Peter Malloy on sound. We've got more debate and discussion next week, so hope you can join us then. We've been Talking History. Good night.